Here on the screen, I have this diagram of Jesus being divine and human, and there have been theological debates that have gone on for centuries. Some individuals have emphasized the divinity of Christ and said that Jesus just appeared to be human. He appeared to get hungry. He appeared to get thirsty. He appeared to have these things. He came in appearance as a man, but he was not really human. It was more of a mirage. He was divine, but he came posing as a human being, looking like a human being, but he was not really a human being like you and me. So there's different heresies that crept into the church that emphasized the divinity of Christ and diminished or even negated the humanity of Christ. And then during the time of the Enlightenment, we had a different Christology that came out that said that Jesus was human, and that's it. He was a good man. He was a moral person, but he was not really divine. And so came the search for the historical Jesus, that the Jesus of faith was not the Jesus of history. But here we have it, this Christological mystery of Jesus being divine and human. Which is it? It's both. And it's one of those cases that we have to be okay with mystery. And any time you emphasize the humanity of Jesus to the diminishing of the divinity of Jesus or vice versa, you get into a very dangerous area. Now, this is the mystery. How can God be 100% human and 100% divine? And we have this mystery that unveils itself in this concept of the nature of Christ and the temptation that Jesus had there. Now, Back in the 4th century, a theologian by the name of Augustine, he wrestled with lust, and he came to the conclusion that sin was not able to be overcome, and sin was something that was original. This concept of original sin came into the church through Augustine. In other words, when Adam sinned, all of us sinned in Adam which meant that every person born into this world had Adam's original sin. We were culpable. We were guilty of Adam and Eve's original sin, which meant that when you were born into this world, you are born a sinner from birth. Sin is a state of being. And then there's all these theological structures that emerge out of this notion of Augustinian original sin, which means when a baby's born into this world... Is that baby a sinner according to the Augustinian paradigm? Absolutely. Which means if that baby dies, is that baby going to be saved? No, not from the paradigm of original sin, which postured this practice or brought into practice, I should say, infant baptism. A baby's born into this world. You've got to baptize him in order to be saved because of Adam's original sin. And then came this Christological dilemma because if Christ was born just like you and I, it would mean that he would be also guilty of Adam's sin as well. You can see the systematic theology that emerges out of this because if Christ is born just like us, he is also guilty of Adam's sin in the Augustinian paradigm, and we know that Christ is not a sinner, so they came up with this concept of the immaculate conception, meaning that Jesus was different than us fundamentally. 
so that he would not be culpable of original sin. And then came up Mariology, because Christ is not really like us. He can't really understand us. And then came up this concept of a co-mediatrix, a co-mediator in Mary, because Mary is like us. She can really understand us. And so Mary takes on this mediatorial role as well. And you can see that one little fundamental core concept, a shift in something sin as a state of being has all these implications regarding the nature of Christ. Now, what is the nature of Christ? Now, this is an area that we need to take our shoes off our feet, according to the spirit of prophecy, because we are on holy ground, and we'll be studying the divinity and the humanity of Christ throughout the ceaseless ages. And there is some information that the Bible and the spirit of prophecy does give, and beyond that, we need to withhold speculation. Amen? And be okay with mystery. But here's some information that the spirit of prophecy gives. And this is from one of my favorite books, The Desire of Ages, talking about the notion of the nature of Christ and what it is, what it was. It would have been almost infinite humiliation for the Son of God to take man's nature even when Adam stood in his innocence in Eden. But... Jesus accepted humanity when the race had been weakened by 4,000 years of sin. Like every child of Adam, he accepted the results of the working of the great law of heredity. What these results were shown in the history of earthly ancestors, he came with such a heredity to share our sorrows and temptations and to give us an example of a sinless life. So here, the desire of ages is very clear that Jesus came bearing the repercussions of the results of sin upon humanity. And one of the reasons was to give us a what? An example of a sinless life. Now, if you take the Augustinian paradigm, can Jesus really be our example? No, because he was conceived in a way that is different than us, And so this whole concept of victory over sin and Jesus being our example falls apart. But here in this paradigm, it's very interesting that Jesus came in a way so that he could show us an example of a sinless life. Now, let's go to scripture here. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, Paul makes a very interesting statement in regards to the incarnation and what Jesus became in his nature. Here it is, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, how many things? All things. He had to be made like his brethren. Now hold that thought. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, meaning Jesus, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, it's atonement, for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered, being what? Tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, there's a lot in there, but I just want to hone in on this part. The Bible states very clearly that whatever Jesus was when he came to this earth in the incarnation, it states that in all things he was made like whom? His brethren. Why? And the last part I want to highlight, there's many reasons, but the last part, he's able to aid those who are tempted. In other words, Jesus came as our example, 
And in his temptation, not only gave us an example of a sinless life, but revealed the character of God and went to heaven so that he's able to assist us when we are tempted. This is significant when it comes to Christology and soteriology, which means the plan of salvation. Now, here's the key phrase that I want to hone in on here. Therefore, in all things, he was made like his brethren. Now, here's the question. Who are the brethren? All right, we are. Now, biblically speaking, letting the Bible interpret itself, here it is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, the same book. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all are one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them what? Brethren. Now, this is a significant nuance in relationship to the nature of Christ that the Bible brings out. Jesus was made just like his brethren in all things. Now, who are his brethren? Those that are being sanctified. Now, here's the rub. I believe that when Jesus came to this earth, he came in humanity, fully human, fully God, but his humanity was sanctified. Now, this sanctification is available by implication in this verse to all of us. Amen? In other words, Jesus did not come with something that we cannot have access to. He came sanctified. So the implication of this verse is that Jesus came not only converted, but he came sanctified. He came into this world, born of the Holy Spirit, and came with the full maturity of sanctification that you and I all have access to. So everything that Jesus came with, we can have. That's the implication. Now, here are a few statements from the Spirit of Prophecy which indicates the nature of Christ in sanctification. And this is from page 93 and 94 in the book Steps to Christ. If you have not read this book, I highly recommend it, by the way. Our Savior... And I want you to notice the nuance of this paragraph. Our Savior identified himself with our needs and weaknesses in that he became a suppliant, a petitioner seeking from his Father fresh supplies of grace that he might come forth brace for duty and trial. Now, the implication is that Jesus got his power from whom? The Father. That he might come forth brace for duty and trial. He is our example in all things. He is a brother, notice the words that she uses here, he is a brother in our infirmities, in all points tempted as we are, but as, sin, as the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. He endured struggles and the torture of the soul in a world of sin. Now, I have a part italicized in this paragraph. It says, but as the sinless one, his nature recoiled from evil. Does, does your nature naturally recoil from evil? No. When I was born into this world, I came with a nature that had a gravity, or gravitated, I should say, towards sin. I enjoyed it. But you can see that Jesus here, his nature, when he came in the presence of sin, his nature was like, it was like scratching a chalkboard. It was like, ugh. That, that doesn't set well with me. 
Now, remember, according to Hebrews, Jesus came in a form of sanctification, a sanctification that we all have access to. And some people may read this and say, oh, Jesus had an advantage that I can never have access to because his nature recoiled from evil. But listen to this. This is from the book Desire of Ages, again, 668. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ, and if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service, When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God. And I praise the Lord for this phrase. Sin will become hateful to us. Praise his name. Which means that in the Christian experience, in the sanctification journey, that through walking with God habitually, that God can rework our neural pathways. Praise his name. That we can get to the place where we hate sin and love righteousness. Amen? And that's what Jesus had. That when following Jesus, it'll be like following our own impulses. That's where God can bring us. By his grace in the sanctification experience. Now, it's not like that in the beginning, but in the Christian experience, through a lifestyle of walking with Jesus day in and day out, you build new neural pathways, and through the Holy Spirit's work, you come to the place where you love to read the Bible. Amen? You love to pray, and you hate witnessing sin. God can transform us. He can rework those neural pathways, which means that when Jesus came to this earth, he came converted and sanctified, but that experience, the experience of Jesus, is available to everyone. Amen? And notice the last part of this. It says that when we know God as is our privilege to know him, the will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ. This is where God wants to bring us. Now, it may not be where we are now, but the beauty of it is that's the destination that God wants to bring us. That's the telos. And Jesus came to this earth in a state that God says, look, you depend on me. I can bring you there. I can bring you there. This is from First Selected Messages, page 252. The majesty of heaven undertook the cause of man, and notice this part, I have this in all caps, and with the same faculties that man may obtain. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Withstood the temptation of Satan as man must withstand him. This was the only way in which fallen man can become a partaker of the divine nature. So everything that Jesus had, we can also have. And here it is. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, is Jesus an ex- our example? To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you a what? Leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is plain scripture, friends. Now, there is 
a prominent systematic theology that is pervasive out there because of Augustinian thought, and it goes like this. Sin is original. Sin is a state of being. Therefore, Jesus did not come with the same nature that we have. You following it? All right. Sin is a state of being. It affects the nature of Christ. Therefore, Christ cannot have the same nature. Therefore, Christ is not our example. Therefore, you're going to be sinning until Jesus comes. There is no power over your addictions. You're going to be living in a lifestyle of sin. And that is a framework and theology that is pervasive throughout Christendom. And it began in the 4th century with the mistake of making sin as a state of being affected Christology, which affected soteriology, which is our practical day-to-day existence. Because here's the rub. If Jesus can't even come with our same nature and overcome sin, what hope do I have? There is no hope. You're lost in your sin. Jesus can forgive you for your past sins, but there's no power in the present to give you victory over sin in the here and now. And that's presented as good news and the gospel. And friends, that's not good news to me. Because I want to go to someone and say, look, there's good news. That heroin addiction that you've been struggling with your whole life, you're forgiven. And God has power to break that habit in your life. Amen? Amen? That's good news. Why? Because Jesus came just like us with things that we can all have, fully sanctified. And that grace and that power is available to you. And you can depend on him to bring you through this. That's good news, friends. That's the power of the gospel. Jesus is our example. And notice the way that Jesus came. Now, here's the question. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4, did Jesus have power in himself to overcome the enemy? That's kind of a trick question here, but all right. Now, ontologically speaking, meaning his divinity. Absolutely. All right. He, he was always God. All right. So he could have just put on the switch. I don't know what it is. It's a mystery, but tapped into his divinity and just batted the devil away like a fly. It would never even been an issue. I mean, how can you tempt, how can you tempt God? Right? He could have just tapped into it. All right. But, but here is, here's the beauty of the way that Jesus came. When Jesus was on this earth, Jesus made a conscious decision never to tap into his ontological divinity. Never. Even though it was there at his fingertips at any time to just tap into it, talk about ultimate temptation. I mean, if I had divinity and omnipotence that I could just switch on in every moment, look out. You don't want that type of temptation. I mean, imagine someone cuts you off on the road and you can just tap into that divinity, right? All the tires on that car just fall off and you just drive off. You know, I mean, I mean this, this is crazy, all right? This is crazy. Praise the Lord that, that we don't have that type of power, all right? So, 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 so here it is, all right? So Jesus had all of that power, all right? Just waiting with a thought to, to tap into, but he did not choose to tap into that power. How did Jesus operate when he was on this earth? And we have some clues from the Gospels. Here is in John chapter 5, verse 19. Then Jesus, and said, Jesus answered and said to them, Verily, verily, I say it to you, the Son can do what? 
nothing of himself. Now, this is not an ontological statement, not saying that he did not have divinity with him, but it's saying that Jesus operated in a way on planet Earth that he did not do anything of his own divine power, even though it was at his fingertips to do so. That was a conscious decision. He chose to operate in a paradigm of not depending on his own power, but depending on Holy Spirit power and the Father's power. The Son can do nothing of himself, but which he seeth the Father do, for what things whatsoever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. And here it is. In John chapter 5, verse 30, by myself, I can do nothing. Now again, that's not an ontological statement of being saying that he's not divine, but of the conscious decision that Jesus operated on planet Earth, fully depending on the Father. Now here's the rub. Can we follow that example? Absolutely. By the grace of God, the same way that Jesus depended on the Father, for everything, is the same way that we are to depend on him for all power. So that's the example that Jesus gave while he was on this earth. And here it is, Desire of Ages, page 664. Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that man may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. The last part of that paragraph indicates that Jesus is our example in his ultimate dependence upon the Father. And we can't do anything, amen? We need to depend on the Father for everything. We need to depend on Jesus for everything. Now, what am I doing here? Okay, so here it is. Now, let's go to the temptation here. Now, I've just taken the macro, you know, 30,000-foot view of the theology of Christology and the implications of that. Now, let's go down here to the micro. So, so we, we've kind of just with a broad brush looked at Christology and some of the issues here, but we've established a, a broad theological framework that Jesus came as one of us, and according to Hebrews, he came sanctified, he came with, with sanctification and conversion, a sanctification and conversion that we all have access to, and he depended on the Father just as we are to depend on him to overcome sin, and in that way he's our example. And so here Jesus comes in temptation, and do you think Satan knows a little bit about Christology? All right? I think he does. All right? The devil's brilliant. So here he comes. The devil knows to a certain degree, I believe that Jesus can't or shouldn't tap into his divinity for his own selfish purposes. And here it is in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, last part of it. But he answered and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, three times in the temptation of Jesus, he quoted scripture. Now, I want us to look at the significance of this. Did Jesus have to quote Scripture? No. He could have just tapped into his divinity and said, look, we're done with this. All right? And the devil would have had to flee. But Jesus, as our example, overcame to reveal to us one fundamental and foundational key to overcoming sin. 
and that is his usage of scripture. The repetition is very clear. It is written, it is written, it is written. So it shows us that in our fallen humanity, we cannot overcome sin any way differently than Jesus showed us as our example. All right, it is written, very clear. All right, so I want to make that observation very quickly here. Uh, the, the concept of it is written is very significant because Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, as his divine power has given unto us that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who, uh, who called us by his glory and virtue, by which has been given us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." What Peter's bringing out here is through the word of God, through the promises, we have access to the divine nature. That's what Peter's bringing out, is that there is access in here to all the power that Jesus had in overcoming temptation. The divine nature is accessible through the promises. And very quickly here, but he answered and said to them, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So very quickly, in this verse, the Bible brings out that there is something more than physical food. It's spiritual nourishment that is the most important thing in our life this side of heaven. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the Toda Scriptura principle, the Bible, and the entirety of the Bible. Now, I want to highlight this part here. Jesus brings us an analogy between the Word of God and bread, and this is not the first time that Jesus used it. Actually, it's the first time, but it comes up later in John chapter 6, verse 51 and 52. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he says, Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. So here, Jesus uses this analogy that is very disturbing to the disciples. And if you read the Gospels after this, many of the disciples went away because they thought he was talking about cannibalism. Because he says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood. But he says, look, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. But he said, look, you need to eat this bread. Later on, Jesus clarified what he really meant. And he said, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. The words I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. Now, I want to comment on this very quickly because we're living in an age today where the very interpretation of Scripture is in question. We're living in an age today where very intelligent and very smart and educated people are reading the Bible and saying that it's not really saying what it's saying. They're spinning theories and having presuppositions that are imposing on Scripture and basically taking, all right, and neutralizing and neutering the word of God of any power. So the way that we interpret scripture is very clear and very plain. And here Jesus is establishing this principle that, look, 
The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. And what the devil would love to do is say like, look, if you want to interpret this text, let's not take Jesus for what he's really saying. It really depends on what the definition of is, is. See, this, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. Jesus didn't really mean that. We need to be more educated in how we approach Scripture. And so there's this hermeneutical challenge that comes in. But look, I believe that the Bible should be interpreted literally, all right, and it's meant for the common person as much as it is the scholar, and that God has given access to everyone. And the most important determiner in where you come on the other end of hermeneutics in Scripture is your intent. He that wills to do his will shall know concerning the doctrine. So it's not about education. It's not about being more educated or smart or anything. It's about being spiritual. Because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And here Jesus brings out this principle. Look, if you take God's word as it reads and accept it into your life, there is power, transformative power, that brings about regeneration in the mind and in the heart. So the words I speak unto you, they are spirit, they are life. So when we look at the sanctuary, it's fascinating Did you know that there is bread in the sanctuary? There is food in the sanctuary. And it is strategically located. All right? The bread is located here. All right? And this bread was to be continually before the Lord. There was never a time in the sanctuary service that there was not food in God's house. It was always there. Now, it would get changed over on a regular basis and be eaten by the priests, but there was never a time that this was not here. There was never a time that the altar of incense was not burning. There was never a time that the candlesticks did not light the holy place. They were always there in the sanctuary. And the strategic location of this reveals the prominent place that the Word of God should be in the Christian life. And it's not once fed, always fed. It's always to be there. Now, look, look at the trajectory. Now, the whole goal of the sanctuary is to bring you from here into here, into here, and finally into here. That's the telos. That's the end. That's the goal of the sanctuary. It's to bring you back to that Adam and Eve relationship that Jesus wants to have with each one of us, that Adam and Eve had before the fall. They were right here. All of us are out here. So God wants to bring us here and into here. So here Jesus brings us into the courtyard. We accept Jesus as our Savior. We're baptized. Then we come into here and we experience continually these three elements, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden candlesticks. And that prepares us and sanctifies us to meet Jesus in the Holy of Holies. That's the Christian experience. Now notice this part here. The table of showbread is here. Now you're baptized Now, this represents the new birth experience, the courtyard. You're born again as a Christian. Now, if you know anything, and this came as a revelation to me, once we had our our son, I, uh, I focused so much on the birth. We did, and rightfully so. And we have focus on the birth every year as a memorial, a birthday. Praise the Lord for the birthday, right? And so we're preparing for the birthday, and it came, and I'm just like, whew, 
What a relief, right? Ten fingers, ten toes, all there, all right? And, uh, and I remember cutting the umbilical cord. Oh, what a privilege, you know? Put his first diaper on. I mean, we had photos. I cherished those memories, you know? And, and then I remember the nurse telling me, look, you got you to gotta give the baby regular feedings. I said, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, baby fits into our schedule, right? <laughs> and she said, no, 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 no. You need to recognize, like, around the clock. I meant, I said, around which clock? You mean, like, 24-hour clock? I said, yes. Every one and a half, two hours, that baby needs food. Mother's milk. And I was just like, wow, this is, I mean, I, I must have missed that part in the, in the birthing book or something. I mean, they didn't tell me about this. So, so you, know, you have a few moments to celebrate and, and experience the birth, and then, and then it transitions to this never-ending, all right, cycle, it seems like of eating, all right? And, and then we get off the milk, and then we go to solid food, and look, we have, a, we have a boy, and I'm like, where's all this food going? You know, he's just constant, constantly eating. I'm just like, whoa, whoa, you know? And, and then I remember my, my senior pastor, Larry Lichtenwalter, he had four boys. Big guys, like six foot eight. I mean, and he said, when these boys would come home, he said, the locusts. The locusts would come in. He just said, David, the locusts came to my home. And he said, I don't understand what's going through these sons' minds. He said they would take just a big old thing of soy milk and just chug it down, the whole thing, and then put the empty carton back in the refrigerator. He said, what is happening? I'm a poor pastor. And so, and so you can see that in the physical life, you never stop eating. Amen? You never stop eating. It's integral to growth and life. And I have news for you, friends. Many theologies out there say, like, look, this is it. Just be born, and you're good. No milk. No bread. You're going on life support. Just, just sit in the pew, and we'll hook you up to TPN. And you know what that is? Direct nutrition, all right? Every Sabbath, come and get it. We'll plug you in, all right, to a feeding tube every Sabbath. And, and, and we have, sad to say, because the theological structures out there, a whole generation, generations of Christians, all right, that have never gotten out of diapers, Never grown. Never learned to feed themselves. And many individuals are content with that experience. But God wants so much more. Amen? And it's no wonder we're walking into church with feeding tubes, emaciated, falling apart, and when the devil comes with temptation, we're just wither away. There's nothing to it. Our immune systems can't handle it. But what God wants to do is to bring us to a place in our Christian experience that we are feeding on the Word of God daily. Amen? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in other words, just as much as we need food, we need the Word. We need the Word. And as we feed on the Word daily, and as we mature and grow in our sanctification experience, 
God strengthens us for temptation. We should be armed with Scripture. Now, I know we live in Alaska. I remember the first time I came here to visit, to check out the church. I remember my wife told me one of the one of the coats of, of the person in front of us went up, and that person was armed. I said, oh, we're living in a different place here. <laughs> Everybody's packing, you know, it seems like. And, and look, there is so much investment. I've been in Cabela's, and I just, you know, I didn't buy anything in that section, but I just went moseyed out over there, and I was just like, wow. I mean, these are... These are things that I just never even imagined, all right? For self-protection. How much more spiritual protection, amen? And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We've wrestled against principalities and powers. And look, we should be armed with the Word of God. We should have a text ready for every temptation. Jesus did. Temptation came. And Jesus didn't miss a beat. Rolled off his tongue, armed with the Word of God. It is written. The text for the temptation. End of discussion. Next temptation. It is written. Next temptation. It is written. And it was over. It was over. And yet what we do, we don't feed on the word of God. We're emaciated. The temptation comes. We don't even have a it is written. We're just like, okay. And we fall into this cycle of sin. Now, it's not to say that there is not forgiveness if we forget if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins but god also has power to keep us from falling and so i want to make this very practical here i want to give you i want to make sure that you're armed spiritually all right clarify that for those that are watching online you're armed spiritually and here is a text that is so easy to remember especially in our social interactions you ever have a situation where someone is so disrespectful, so rude, or says something so hurtful and hateful to you? I have. How does that make you feel? I, you know, your human nature just rises up, and like there are situations where someone comes up and says things to me so disrespectful, and, and mind you, don't think that Christians are immune to rudeness. All right, that's, that's how the devil gets you in this situation. And I'm just like, oh man, I thought this person was all about the character of God. And it's just like, a vengeance just comes at me. And I'm just like, whoa, all right? I thought you were a Christian. And you know, and, and there's that reaction, the temptation to respond in kind to a Christian that is not being very Christ-like, that is interrogating you, all right? That is trying to catch you in your words. And you're just like, what do you do? It is written. And here's a text for those social interactions. In that moment that you're tempted to respond, quote this verse. And it's so easy to remember. Say it with me. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Hallelujah. I mean, isn't that easy to remember? All right, you're in a social interaction, you're at Walmart, and that, that cash register person is so rude, and you're just, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by, and look, it's a promise. It's a promise. Because when you quote that verse, 
you are tapping into the divine nature. And the same things that Jesus had, you now have. And you have victory in that moment over responding in an unchristlike manner in misrepresenting the character of God. How many of you want that today? Amen? How many of you want to be armed with the Word of God so that it just rolls over your consciousness to say, it is written, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus, that he came as one of us, walked on this earth, and gave us an example by depending on the Father. To give us an example of total dependence. Oh, Lord Jesus, we need you more than ever before at this moment in earth's history. Help us to depend on you through your word. Help us to be armed with scripture that any time we're tempted, we would have a response of it is written. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot audioverse.org.